0: Revelation chapter one is where we're going to be today. Revelation one, going to be starting in verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Apostle John is writing this book. First vision in the book of Revelation is in this passage, and so he hears somebody talking to him, and he kind of turns over his shoulder, and when he sees who's talking to him, he sees this person standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And the description we're getting here is that whoever he's seeing is really, really bright. I mean, it says the hair of his head is white like wool. His eyes are like blazing fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. This person's face, it's shining like the sun. Now keep this in mind. This is the Apostle John. Okay, so last time I was in chapel, I talked about this transfiguration moment, Matthew chapter 17. Yeah, in that time, Jesus leads three guys, Peter, James, and John, same John the apostle. And at that transfiguration moment, John sees Jesus revealed in his glory, all shining. So right here in Revelation, when John looks in these seven lampstands and sees this guy shining, he's like, I've seen this before. This has happened once before, and John's response in this passage in Revelation 1, exact same as what it was last time in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration, falls to his face. Falls to his face, Jesus' words to him now are the same as they were then, do not be afraid. Last summer, I uh, got to perform my first wedding And uh, so I'm performing this wedding. We're at the uh, wedding rehearsal. Everybody's kind of getting their nerves out. We're all a little nervous. And uh, the wedding coordinator plays the music for us to start practicing the entry into the wedding. So I walk down the aisle. Pastor usually comes first. The groom is with me. The groomsmen come down the aisle. Like all groomsmen, they're joking. They're messing around. This is not a very serious occasion for them. They're just like chill. The bridesmaids come down. They look great. They're like super happy. Finally, we to the time in the rehearsal where the bride's about to walk down. Father of the bride walks her down. They're walking. Gets about halfway down the aisle. Bride looks up. Eyes meet her future husband's eyes. They both start crying. They both start crying. The groomsmen finally catch on to what's going on. They're like, oh, this is an important moment, guys. Be quiet. The (laughs) brides are like paying attention and everybody starts crying. Like I'm there performing my first wedding and I'm crying. And I'm like, what's going on? Well, these are not tears of sadness. These are tears of joy. These two have not waited like a week for this or a month for this. They've been waiting their whole life for this moment. When John sees Jesus in this passage, Jesus starts giving him a message. And the message is that the church is the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And there's seven churches that Jesus is speaking to through John. And he's asking this question, are you ready for the wedding? Are you ready for the day? We're gonna walk down the aisle and this whole deal gets sealed. So right now I want you to read with me one of the messages to the churches. This is from Revelation chapter two. We're going to put this on the screen. This is to the angel in the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. And that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships from my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever hears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Every time Jesus speaks to a church in Revelation, the progression of the message is the same. He starts off reminding them with who he is. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars. These are the words of him whose mouth is a sharp double-edged sword. These are the words of him who was dead and now I'm alive. So he starts reminding them who he is and he always transitions them into this section of I know your deeds. I know you, it's not just about him, Jesus. He begins to speak their identity, who they are. And usually after he speaks their identity, there's this statement of whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, absolutely love it. The sixth book in the Chronicles of Narnia is one of my favorites, uh, The Silver Chair. One of the characters in the Chronicles is named Jill. At the very beginning of this book, Jill meets Aslan, the Jesus figure in Narnia, and Aslan gives her four words, four signs. There's four things that he speaks to her and says, hey, you have to remember these four words. Like whatever you do, wherever you go, don't forget these four things because your mission in this book depends on it. Jill goes through hard times. Jill has to face a wilderness. Jill has to face giants. All these different things happen. And about halfway through the book, Aslan meets her and asks her the question, what are the words I gave you? Jill, do you remember? What did I tell you were the four signs? The bride is not ready for the wedding the moment we start to forget. And we usually forget one of these three things. What often happens is something difficult occurs in my life. There's a moment of suffering. Okay, these seven churches in Revelation, they had suffering. Jesus mentions it. He says to the church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. They're suffering. They're poor. I know your endured hardships, Ephesus. Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So there's this thing. There's this progression of forgetfulness that we can fall into in the church. The moment suffering causes me to pick my eyes off of Jesus, I'm forgetting who he is. Now listen to me. Listen to me. Forgetting who God is doesn't mean you lose information about who God is. It means your eyes aren't fixed on him anymore. That's the biblical concept of forgetting God. You're not fixing your eyes on him. Because I'm not fixing my eyes on him, I start to base my identity off of something else instead of him. So I'm moving further down the progression. And as I forget who he is and don't fix my eyes on him and forget who I am, I begin to forget the word he's given me. Vividly remember a chapel service when I was sitting right over there in that section when I was a student. We had a speaker that was here from the Middle East. This chapel was one of the most powerful chapels I ever remember. This speaker was a persecuted Christian. So he was telling us a story in chapel of how he lived in the Middle East and he was being beaten in a prison for his faith. And as he's describing this story, I remember tears flooded down my eyes because he said, I would give anything to be back in that jail being beaten again. And I'm sitting there listening to this guy and I'm like, I don't have that spirit. Like I'm not like that because this guy says the closeness I felt to God's presence in that moment was unlike anything I've ever felt in my life. Suffering is the best measurement of your walk with the Lord. Okay, the best measurement of my walk with the Lord is not coming to an altar call It's not summit, it's not chapel, it's not the way I sing. The best measurement is suffering, why? Because suffering exposes the steadfastness of my spirit. Steadfastness means I don't just start strong, I finish strong, I have perseverance. I endure in the words God has given me. So suffering can be this two-edged sword, guys. It can kill me if it forces my eyes off Christ. It can become a weapon in my hand if I use it to fix my eyes on Christ. There's this crazy thing. Last time I was in chapel, I talked about the idea that you can open your spiritual house to a spirit other than the Holy Spirit. And if you do that often enough, it creates a stronghold in your life. Well, I believe this. There's a very specific type of stronghold we have on this campus that needs to be called out today. Some of us in our sufferings have allowed our sufferings to get our eyes off of who he is. That is understandable, friends. It is not excusable. And what that's done is it's given room in my life for me to get this really mixed up. So suddenly my sufferings are getting my eyes off of him and onto me. Wait a minute, I forget I'm a son, I'm a daughter. I forget my identity because I've allowed a spirit of victimhood into my life. I think I am a victim. I'm giving power over to the spirit of victimhood because suffering has just oppressed me for so long. Suffering will make you selfish or it will make you steadfast. And the only difference between the two is whether or not you fix your eyes on Christ. We have to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. Consider him who endured such opposition so you won't grow weary and you won't lose heart. Man, the spirit of victimhood needs to be cast out of this place. I'm not saying our sufferings aren't real. There is suffering on this campus. It is real. It is real. It is real and it is painful and it is hard, but it's not your identity. It's not your identity. And I believe this. I break, I break, I break the power of the spirit of victimhood in my life when I start to worship. When I'm in sufferings, and I'm in danger of forgetting what God's told me and who he says I am and who he says he is, man, I start worshiping, I fix my eyes on him. It's not emotion driven, it's saying, I'm choosing in my suffering to not become selfish. Guys, our husband was a sufferer. Isaiah 53 says he was familiar with sufferings, he was a man of sorrows, he knows suffering. And if I'm not willing as a Christian to go through sufferings that make me steadfast, not selfish, we're marrying the wrong man. We're walking down the wrong aisle because I have not just inherited his glory, I've inherited his sufferings. What does Paul say in Romans 8? He says this, so that you may inherit not only the glory of Christ, Romans 8, 17, but also his sufferings. When I take on the name of Jesus, I don't walk up to him and say, man, in riches and in health, but not in sickness and poverty. Paul said it best. He said, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want both. That's what it means to be ready for the wedding. There's some churches though in the book of Revelation that are not in that spot, okay? If you were like to map it out, they're actually on the other side of the spectrum. So their sufferings aren't making them selfish. Their success has stripped them of a search for Christ. Okay, there's this really important concept, this searching for Christ's second return. And hear me out, I'm not talking about like trying to figure out the date, like when's he coming back. I'm talking about unrest. I'm talking about longing. Like there should be something in my heart that's like, when is he coming back? When is he coming back? There's something in us as a church that is not filled. It is not complete until the husband comes back for the bride. Two weeks ago, Awaken was in New York and I was in this guest room in our host home in New York and I was watching this YouTube clip about the second coming of Christ. And I just wanna confess this to you. It was the first time in my memory, first time in my memory that I started to weep because he's coming again. I couldn't remember the last time that had happened for me. Can I ask us, have we stopped searching for that moment? Friends, the return of Christ is not just a thing of judgment, it is a thing of hope. It is a thing of tremendous joy. All our hopes hang on that moment. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 2, does a maiden forget her jewelry? Does a bride forget her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Man, success, life being good, it can strip me of this search for Christ. When is he coming back? I long to see him. So suffering can make me selfish, which makes the bride unfit for the wedding. Success can strip me of this search for him. But then there's also this reality that just surviving life, just the mundane makes me forget what this vision is all about. Do this with me. Would you turn your attention to the screen? Jesse, let's put Revelation 21 up there. I want you to do this with me. Would you read out loud these verses with me. This is Revelation 21, nine through 11. I just feel like this is appropriate as we're talking about the second coming to confess this together as a body. So would you do that with me? Let's read this together starting in verse nine. Here we go. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, That verse, verse 11 says, it shone with the glory of God. This blew my mind when I first saw it. All semester long here in chapel, I've been preaching about the glory of God. These moments where God leaves the invisible spiritual realm and steps into earth with this cloud and this brightness and this sound of rushing waters. Well, I know in Revelation, it says there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no stars when the wedding happens because the glory of God is our light. Like the glory of God won't be a fleeting glimpse behind a curtain anymore. We're gonna live in it, y'all. It's gonna be regular, everyday stuff. But here's the thing I didn't realize in this passage, it's not just the groom bringing the glory, it's the bride. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The bride is shining with God's glory. We have a part, we have a part to play. Man, when this wedding comes that all of history has looked toward, it's not just coming down and we have no dress and no ornaments and no congregation. It's like, dude, we are prepared. We have cultivated glory here on earth. So one day we can take it to heaven and say, Jesus, our husband, we're ready for you. Some theologians have said maybe the purpose of creation was that God the Father wanted to give God the Son a bride. Come on, that's a good purpose. And if that's our purpose, let's not forget it. Let's not let suffering, success or survival strip us of that vision. There's this phrase that's used all throughout Revelation. It's this thing that the church would say in response to the message that Christ is coming. And it's a really simple phrase, but actually can mean a ton of different things. They would say the word Maranatha, which translated means come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. So if you're suffering, you can say, come Lord Jesus. And that means God, I confess to you, my sufferings have made me selfish. Like I've allowed a spirit of victimhood into my life. And this is not about me, Jesus, it's about you. So come Lord Jesus, my eyes are on you. Come Lord Jesus can also mean, Lord, I've allowed success to strip me of a real search for your return. I don't long anymore. I don't cry anymore, I don't yearn anymore. God, God, come, come Lord Jesus. Take a moment to think about which of these categories you fall into. Bottom of your heart, would you confess what the church has confessed for years and generations? Repeat this with me. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's say it again. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, we ask your forgiveness for the moments that we've allowed our sufferings to make us selfish. God, all across this room, I pray for those who have had a spirit of victimhood in their life. They've allowed their sufferings to make them the victim. I pray today you'd restore that identity, that our eyes would become fixed on you. God, I pray that we would not let success strip us of our urgency. We're not home. We are not home yet, God. And when we come home, it's gonna be joyful. I pray you give fresh energy, God, to those in this room that just feel weary, that are struggling to get to the end of the semester. Would they keep the end goal, not the end of the semester, but the wedding, the end of the rehearsal, the end of the engagement. May they keep that end goal in mind. I just thank you. You're coming back for us and we can live every day in that hope. whisper this back to the Lord one more time. Come, Lord Jesus. God, I pray that we'd walk today in the knowledge of your return.